right. And if you have your Bibles, if you would go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Galatians. Galatians chapter 6. We're going to be reading 1 through 5 this morning. Um, and just show of hands, how, how's it going with the Bible reading this year? Bible reading plan. Is it going well? How many of you are finding it to be a struggle? Yes, it's always a struggle. It's January 17th, so this is about the time where we're falling behind on our Bible reading plans. Let me just give you a word of encouragement. If you get behind, it's okay. Just keep reading. Just keep reading and filling up on the treasure of God's word. So let's do that this morning from Galatians chapter 6. Uh, one through five. Now, last week we looked at uh, what it means to be to to keep in step with the Spirit. So Paul has been going on and on here about how they've received the Spirit. Now, just live by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. And we saw how if you're keeping in step with the Spirit, you bear this fruit: love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Well, something I want you to notice as we read Galatians six one through five is. Notice how all of this fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, how much of it depends on being in community with someone else. How are we to apply love? How are we to apply peace? How are we to apply patience and goodness and faithfulness if not in the context of being in a community with one another? So that's a little bit about what we're going to talk about today as Paul shifts his focus to, to doing this in community. All right, let me read. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Let me pray. Father, as we look to your word this morning, I pray that you would cause our hearts and our minds to look to you in faith that we are going to receive a gift, in faith that we are going to receive a gift this morning of your grace to show us exactly what it is we need to enjoy the best that you have set apart for us. So Lord, I pray that we would come to your word this morning with a spirit of readiness to respond, to readiness to obey. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes and open our hearts to behold wonderful things from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder, has anyone here ever just become so frustrated, and maybe this is right now, that you've become so frustrated with the world or people around you that you've said things like this, I just want to get away from people. Or, I can't stand being around people. This week, I came up upon a car that had a bumper sticker, and and I think that it's been attributed to Mark Twain before, but I don't know. 
that said, the more I learn about people, the more I like my dog. I think some people probably have experienced, many of us have experienced that sentiment before. The more I learn about people, the more I like my dog. And maybe a a more spiritual sounding response, something I'm sure I've uttered to my wife in the past is, sometimes I just wish I could be a monk and get away from everything. And there was actually this movement in the history of the church in the 400s where some monks believed or some religious devotees believed that the most spiritual thing that they could do to avoid the corruption of this world, to avoid being stained by the world, was just to get away from it altogether, just to abandon the world. So they retreated into the deserts. They retreated into solitude just so they could be alone with God and get away from people. There was this one guy, maybe some of you have heard of Simeon the Stylite. Simeon the Stylite was one of these desert fathers who believed that what was best for him spiritually is that if he went off into the desert and built a pillar 50 feet high with a one square meter platform, then climbed to the top and lived on it for 37 straight years, just so he could be alone with God and leave behind some of the annoyances of civilization. Now, I think we would agree that that's a little bit extreme, and I don't think anybody here is ready to go build a 50-foot pillar and live on it for the rest of their lives. But for Christians today, I think there are many who entertain more subtle sentiments of wanting to escape the burdens of having to deal with other people. I've had people say things like this to me, and maybe you've heard some of these. Well, religion should be a private matter that's just between me and God, so I don't really need the church. I've heard people say, I like to do church at home because the church, the one that has people in it, is really messy. By the way, I want you to know that the the word church, that the church that Jesus Christ is said to have purchased with his own blood, literally means the physical gathering of his people in space and time. I still, I've heard others say, I stopped going to church because it's full of hypocrites, which is like saying, I stopped going to the gym because it's full of fat people. Now, many of the Galatians, they were also in danger of becoming far too inwardly focused. And this is something that Paul wants to get at here in this passage. Their primary problem was not so much that they wanted to be completely independent of all people, but it was that they wanted to know that they were, religiously speaking, independent and relying solely upon themselves and what they could do for God. What can I do for God to show him that I am worthy of his love? What can I do to show myself to be more righteous than someone else? It was sort of this religious virtue signaling. Well, now Paul wants to turn his focus onto how the spirit-filled community, people who are, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, will be a community of people who serve one another. We'll be a community of people who help one one another keep in step with the Holy Spirit. And this is really the theme for this morning, that spiritual people 
the kind of people Paul is talking about in Galatians 5, spiritual people help one another keep in step with the Spirit. Spiritual people help one another keep in step with the Spirit. Now, this is a theme all throughout Scripture. Um, Chris read just a minute ago from Hebrews 10, 24. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but to encourage one another even more as the day draws near. In 1 Thessalonians 5.11, we're told, encourage one another and build each other up. In 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, and all of these are in the context of local churches, we read, have the same care for one another. 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another, the gift that comes from the Holy Spirit. And as I've already mentioned, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22 cannot be made manifest, cannot be made evident apart from a community of fellow believers. So Paul has three things for us this morning to help us understand this reality that spiritual people help one another keep in step with the Spirit. And the first is this. The Spirit-filled individual seeks to restore sinners. The Spirit-filled individual seeks to restore sinners. Brothers, he says in verse 1, if anyone is caught in any transgression, any trespass, any, any sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now, I'm guessing that the majority of people who are in this room, who are sitting in the pews this morning, if on your way to church this morning, you saw someone that you recognized from this church whose car was broken down on the side of the road, or maybe they were laying down on the side of the road, I think you would almost instinctively do something to help restore them to a better condition, right? I think all of us would do that. But when it comes to sin and the problem of sin in the church, Paul says it should be exactly the same way with us, those who are committed to one another. And many of us think that one of the fruits of the Spirit should be niceness. If you notice the fruit of the Spirit, there's not a fruit of the Spirit that is being nice. There is love, there is kindness, there is forbearance, there is gentleness, but there's not niceness. As in, let's just leave everything to be pleasant and let's all just get along, regardless of what anybody's doing with their life. I had the privilege of being in a CPR class this past week for a, a Navy obligation. And I learned that if someone goes into cardiac arrest, the way to save their life is to press on their chest so hard that you break some of their ribs. Now, that's a very loving thing to do, right? But it's not very pleasant, is it? We might not describe it as, oh, it's nice. It's nice to break someone's ribs. Imagine if, if long before, though, that it had gotten to the point of cardiac arrest, that there was a young doctor, maybe newly out of medical school, just trying to kind of feel his way. Imagine that he had discovered some blockage in the arteries, but he had become too afraid of the patient's reaction 
to what that might require, that he decided not to tell him. Would you say that that doctor was practicing love, kindness, faithfulness? I have a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and if you know anything about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this is a guy who, who gave the ultimate price, who laid down his life uh, in order to fight against Hitler uh, during the time of World War II, in order to fight for the cause of the Jewish people who were being killed by the millions. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was also a pastor, and he wrote this book called Life Together about what the Bible calls us to as those who live together in community. And he says this, he says, reproof is unavoidable. God's word demands it when a brother falls into open sin. The practice of discipline in the congregation, and we're talking here about if anyone's caught in any transgression, restore him. The practice of discipline in the congregation begins in the smallest circles, where defection from God's word in doctrine or life imperils the family fellowship, and with it the whole congregation. The word of admonition and rebuke must be ventured. Nothing can be more cruel than a tenderness that consigns another to his sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. Now, when Paul talks about anyone being caught in any transgression, what he has in mind here, it's, it's the word to be overtaken by a sin, to be overcome by a sin, to, 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 to get so far into a particular sin that it, it is making a wreck of your life. You are now out of step with the Holy Spirit. You have stumbled and you're, and you're being trampled over by the world. Who is it that Paul says is supposed to come along and restore that person? Look in verse one again. Who is it that's supposed to restore that person? Is it the pastor? Maybe. Is it a deacon in the church that is called only called to that ministry? Paul says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And I want you to see this is tied to Galatians chapter 5, that walk by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. If you're in step with the Spirit, you will bear the fruit of the Spirit. And now Paul says, so who is supposed to restore the sinner who's caught in sin? The one who is spiritual. If the Spirit lives in you, then all of us have been called to a ministry of restoration, a ministry of not being okay with sin in the church, but going after it and restoring the brother or sister for the sake of their own soul and for the sake of the church. Unless you think this is an isolated port portion of Scripture here, this is consistent with all of the New Testament. We have in Matthew 18, a kind of a process for how we go about this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. You have restored the fellowship with your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile 
and a tax collector. In other words, let him be somebody outside of the church. In Hebrews 12, we're told to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's how important this is, that we strive for holiness together so that we see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, it says. And then James 5.20, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. All of us who are spiritual, all of us who have the Spirit of God living in us are called to the ministry of restoration, are called to not be okay with sin in the church. Now, what's the key to this type of restoration here? Paul says to do this in a spirit of gentleness. And I think this is where this gets really, really difficult for us. I think often... The fear is that if we address sin in the church, if we call out sin in someone else, then we will end up scaring off the sinner and only harden them more to the truth of God. And I think the reason for this is that we've seen it done so poorly in the past. We've seen it done harshly. We've seen it done in a very unloving and unkind and un gentle way. Many of you may have heard stories of of women who were rebuked for wearing pants in the church. That used to be a thing, right? Or maybe you've heard stories about people who were caught dancing in public, and so they were disciplined by the church and shunned by everyone in the congregation. Or they were caught playing cards with someone else. These used to be things that people were disciplined for, but it was more about preference or opinions than it was about ever about the truth of God. Or maybe you've experienced this or you've heard about someone who, was, who came to the church broken over their sins, repentant and asking for forgiveness and restoration, but because it was a particular sin, a particular unrespectable sin in the eyes of society, they were immediately outcast and never accepted as a part of the family again. Now, all of these examples would be examples of trying to follow the command of Paul here, yet devoid of the fruit of the Spirit, devoid of a spirit of gentleness. And so Paul has some words here to help us think about how we go about this. He says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. If we are ever to be in a place where we can lovingly restore a wandering brother or sister, restore them to the fellowship who has been caught up in sin, who has been overtaken by sin, we must be keeping watch on ourselves. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, this could mean a couple of things. Um, It could mean that, that if we get close enough to that particular sin that we may be tempted by it ourselves and be overcome. I think the primary thing that Paul has in mind here, though, is a temptation to spiritual pride, is that we would begin to compare their sins to our little sins and think to ourselves, wow, I'm so glad I'm not like that person. 
or that in wanting to, to, to be rid of the sin that, that has gotten into the church, we go in a spirit of rage and we say, how dare you do that thing when we ourselves have that log sticking in our eyes. Keep watch over yourselves lest you be tempted. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. I think if we are going to be about the ministry of restoration of sinners in the church, we do need to always be taking inventory of ourselves. I think it's been a really common thing in the media where whenever a, a... a noteworthy pastor or a Christian leader, an evangelist, um, an apologist, somebody who, who speaks at conferences, and, and one of these just happened uh, within the course of the last few weeks. When one of those leaders falls morally, they have a major moral failure, there is a tendency for all of us, I think, to point the finger and say, wow, I'm so glad I'm not like that sicko. As if to say that all of us are somehow better. As if to say that it wasn't God's grace and mercy in our own life that keeps us, by the grace of God, walking by His Spirit each day. The restoration of sinners should always force us to take inventory of ourselves. Restoration in gentleness must never mean turning a blind eye to sin it does mean that we will have to ask hard questions of one another, that we will have to keep one another accountable for the sake and the good of their soul. It means that we will have to have uncomfortable conversations in order to protect them and to protect the body of Christ. And one of the hardest things about about going up to a brother or a sister and saying, brother, there's something in your life that is not right with God that I wish it were. One of the hardest parts, I think, is that the Bible does not give any guarantee to us that their response will be one of repentance. There is no guarantee in the scripture that they will receive that news as loving or as kind or as helpful. And maybe we have images in our head of somebody turning from the church forever and so we're so afraid to ever say anything that we just let it go on and like leaven a little bit of leaven that leavens the whole life we let it go on destroying the church brothers and sisters we submit to a higher authority here who says we must not be okay with sin in the church and so i would say the church must be an uncomfortable place, a very uncomfortable place for bold sinners to remain. If you're happy in your sin and you just want to go on disobeying the commands of God and doing your own thing, then the church should be a very uncomfortable place for you because that is not what we're called to. And yet the church at the same time must be a place of comfort and a place of healing and the place of restoration for all who come as broken sinners clinging to the mercy of God. The spirit-filled person seeks to restore sinners. The next point here is that 
the spirit-filled person bears the burdens of his spiritual family member. Paul says, bear one, another, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I'm going to quote Bonhoeffer again. It is only when he is a burden that another person is really a brother. It is only when he is a burden that another person is really a brother and not merely an object to be manipulated. If you look back at Galatians 5 with those works of the flesh, uh, which were sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, and so on and so forth. What all of those have in common is that we are treating other humans as an object to be manipulated compared to the fruit of the Spirit, which is considering the interests of others above our own, which is treating others as more important than us. Christian ministry, the ministry that all of us are called to as Christians, is a ministry of burden-bearing and burden-sharing. If you are a church member, if you are a member of the family of God, you are called to bear one another's burdens. You say, whose burdens am I supposed to bear? Whoever God has put in your sphere within the church. I'm not saying we're not to bear the burdens of our neighbors outside the church, but particularly here, Paul is dealing with the household of faith. And he says, this is the way that we fulfill the law of Christ. How do you know if you're fulfilling the law of Christ? Ask yourself, am I bearing the burdens of those he has called, the fellow believers he's called into my life? That's how I know if I'm fulfilling the law of Christ. The law of Christ Although it's not explicitly defined here, it doesn't say this is the law of Christ. The law of Christ, we know, is at least this, to love God with all our hearts and soul and mind and strength, to love our neighbors as ourself. But the way that we're able to do this is only because we have known that Christ has already borne our greatest burden at the cross knowing that his Holy Spirit is enabling us to love in a similar way that he, to what he, how he loved us by giving his life for us on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. And we're able to do that because we know that we have no fear of somehow losing something or becoming impoverished or no fear that we're going to fall behind our peers if we bear one another's burdens because Christ bore the ultimate burden for us. When we bear one another's burdens, we both demonstrate that Christ has borne ours, and at the same time, we extend that burden-bearing ministry to them. Now that we belong to Jesus, we belong by extension to Jesus' people. Understand that. There is no Christian life outside of the context of community with other Christians because when you are bound to Christ, you are bound to his people. You are obligated to bear the burdens of one another. So how are we bearing the burdens within the church? What, what, what does he have in mind? Well, I think primarily because this is in the context of restoring the wandering sinner, he's referring to bearing with the sins of our brothers and sisters. 
If you are in a church long enough, if you are committed to a church long enough, you will see that Christians still do sinful things. And sometimes Christians do things that are really hurtful. But that is never a reason to leave the church, but rather it should be a reason to cling more to the church, which is God's design for his people to bring about restoration of fellowship. The more that we bear with the sins of our brothers and sisters, guess what? The more we understand the depth of the mercy that he has shown us. The more that we bear with the sins of our brothers and sisters within the church, not running away from conflict, not running away when we're hurt, but clinging to God's mercy in the church, the more that we will understand the profound nature of the mercy of God in our lives. So it certainly means bearing with one another in our sins. I think it also means bearing with the weaknesses of our brothers and sisters. And I might mean physical weaknesses here, literally bearing the burdens of people who are physically weaker than ourselves, taking care of one another, shoveling the driveways of people who can't get out and shovel for themselves. I think it also means bearing with the spiritual weaknesses. There are people when you come into the church that will seem more annoying than other people. There are people that will rub you the wrong way a lot more often than other people who you like to be around. And I think God does that because in his genius, he knows that if we bear with those weaknesses, we will begin to understand that we're really annoying people too. And yet he died for us all the same. Bearing with weaknesses. I think it also means bearing with the sufferings of our brothers and sisters. And certainly within this church, we have people today who are suffering. We have people who are suffering from physical ailments, We have people who are suffering from loneliness. We have people who are suffering from depression. And if I could just give you a really small counseling lesson this morning to teach you how to counsel one another or to at least bear one another's burdens, it would be this. Sometimes the best things that you can offer to the person who is suffering is simply to be present with them and to let them know you're there for them, you care for them, you're praying for them, and you, maybe you don't understand in the, 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 the ultimate sense that they're going through it, but you can at least say, hey, listen, I know it's hard, and I'm here for you. That is one of the, the best ways that we can bear the burdens of those who are suffering, because a lot of the suffering that is experienced in the church, it is beyond our ability to address. God has responsibilities that we don't have. And we have to leave that to God, but we can at least offer the word to say, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry to hear what you're going through. To go over and sit with them. To not feel like you have to say anything, but just say, I'm going to be here. And if you want me to leave, just tell me to leave. But I want to be here for you to help you get through this. The spirit-filled person is one who bears the burdens of the family of God. And then finally... The spirit-filled person takes no comfort in comparison. The spirit-filled person takes no comfort, has no confidence in comparing themselves to other brothers and sisters in the church. I'm sure all of you are probably familiar with the comparison syndrome. I think Facebook has probably made this a sport that we would 
get on the Facebook feed and compare ourselves to others and either think, wow, they have a much better life than us or wow, we have a much better life than them. So we look upon them either judgmentally or in despair that we're not, we don't have the life that they have. And so we grow envious and we become covetousness and we have desires that well up in us that we didn't know about when we compare ourselves to others. Well, Paul says, if anyone thinks that he is something, and he's specifically attacking spiritual pride here, if anyone thinks that he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. If the way that you measure how you are getting along in this life is by ranking yourself next to others, Paul says you are deceiving yourself. If your justification before a perfect and holy God is based on how much more good you've done than someone else or how much less evil you do than someone else, then you are deceiving yourself. And this was a crucial problem for the Galatians. It was one which had become a real stumbling block that was keeping them from bearing spiritual fruit, from pursuing holiness, from bearing one another's burdens, from fulfilling the law of Christ. Jesus himself said, if you don't have me, if you don't abide in me, he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. All of us have to recognize that apart from Christ, we have nothing. We can do nothing that is of eternal value. And he has this parable for us in Luke 18.10, which is particularly instructive. Jesus says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So one who was highly regarded in the Jewish society and one who was the lowest in Jewish society. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted." The spirit-filled person knows that he is nothing save for the grace of God in his life, save for the shed blood of Jesus applied to his life. You see, the more aware that you become of your sinfulness, the more that you will kill self-reliance and pride in your life. An awareness of God's extreme grace and mercy, which he has shown you in Christ Jesus, will kill any notion of justification by comparing yourself to others. So Paul says, let each one test his own work. Then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. That can sound kind of confusing. What's he talking about? Boasting in yourself? No, Paul doesn't want us to boast in ourselves. He doesn't mean that we should boast in ourselves in the sense that we should brag about how much better we are than one another. 
In fact, Paul says in Galatians 6:14, "Far be it for me to boast except in the cross of Christ." He's saying, "Don't boast on the basis of others' downfalls or others' weaknesses, but instead take inventory of your own work, your own heart, so that you can boast that the Spirit is making you more like Christ day after day after day. That the Spirit is crucifying the sins of the old man and is putting a stop to the works of the flesh. That's your reason to boast. Boast in the Spirit and the work of the Spirit in you. He says in verse 5, each will have to bear his own load. Brothers and sisters, every single one of us will have to give an account. Not for how we measured up to our neighbors, not for how we measured up to our fellow church member, not for how we measured up to our husband or wife, but instead how we stewarded the grace of God in our lives. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. 2 Corinthians 5, 10 through 12. Now the burden, Paul uses the term burden here twice in verses 1 through 5. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And then in verse 5 at the end here, for each will have to bear his own load. Those two words are actually two totally different. Well, they're not totally different, but they are two different words in the Greek. And Paul is teaching us something here. The first type of burden is this heavy freight that is unbearable by an individual. It's something that must be shared by the whole. So as a church, we are called to bear those burdens that Others cannot bear individually. But the last word for burden that he uses here in verse 5 is a different word which refers to an individual burden, like a backpack that all of us must carry on our shoulders. And he's speaking of the burden of human responsibility for our sinful actions. The burden of how we steward what God has given us or whether we rejected him and his grace. And the spirit-filled person never compares himself in order to exalt himself. But instead, the spirit-filled person must always be relying on the grace of God, the grace of Christ, and in turn see his brother and sister as someone who is wholly dependent on that same grace. Romans 12:3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. See, living faithful lives as spiritual people means that we are resting in the work of the Holy Spirit within us, that we are always seeking to employ the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives us to build up the church, And that we are recognizing that our spiritual brothers and sisters are equally important to God on account of the spirit that is at work in them. Spirit-led Christians must never be self-sufficient, self-reliant, independent people. Rather, we are to always be Christ-sufficient, spirit-reliant, 
and interdependent people. And God has given us the blessing of his holy church, the bride of Christ, as the church is called. He's given us the church to be able to work all of this out together, to keep us from falling into sin and making a wreck of our lives, to be a place of restoration and healing for the broken sinner, to bear the burdens that we cannot bear ourselves, and to bear those burdens for one another, to have those burdens borne for us and to bear them for one another, and to teach us all that by the grace of God, all who belong to Jesus are works in progress, being renewed day by day by the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit that is at work within us. So how can you respond to these truths today? Start by asking the question, whom has God called me here for? I'm here in this building for a reason on this Sunday morning. Whom has God called me here to serve? Whose burdens is he calling me to bear right now? Who is in need of rescue from destructive sin patterns? Is there somebody that is missing today that you haven't seen in a long time and God is calling you to reach out to them and to plead with that brother or sister, come back into the fellowship. I'm not talking about COVID, staying away from COVID. I always have to say that. But who maybe has he placed here right now in order to build a deeper relationship with so that they can encourage you and spur you on to a greater Christ-likeness? Whom has he called me to serve today? Let's ask those questions. And as we leave here today and as we reflect on his words, ask yourself, am I bearing anyone's burdens? And if I'm not, how can I be possibly fulfilling the law of Christ? And I know that there is no one here who does not want to be fulfilling the law of Christ. This is his design for a spirit-filled community. Let's live by his design.